Today's sermon is a wee bit shorter than usual. My usual ones. Hallelujah! <laughs> the reason I know this is because when I came in and picked up the copies of my sermon, which Leslie had printed, they've gone on to one double-sided A4 sheet. Normally there's an extra sheet. Now the font, I would have to say, is pretty wee. But anyway, my sermon is a wee bit shorter, so for the next hour and a half, <laughs> let's... <coughs> the title of today's sermon, as we continue looking at the book of First John, is Testing Times. How are we loving? How are we loving is a question we should regularly, daily, continually be asking ourselves, whatever our circumstances at any given time. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, where division and squabbling seem to be the order of the day, particularly in relation to who had the greatest gifts and therefore were the most important members of the fellowship, depending on how gifted they were, for example, if they could speak in tongues. And Paul assures them, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Similarly, there appear to have been tensions. Indeed, some folk seem to have left the fellowship, which John is addressing in this letter. John, like Paul, assures them, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And... This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Our lives are to be marked by sacrificial service as disciples of Christ. Most of us will not literally have to lay down our lives as we seek to live for Christ. But some will, and some have. David Jackman writes, It is a love that gives without counting the cost, without any thought of return, without first weighing up whether or not such love is deserved. A love that is entirely without self-interest. It is the nature of God's love to give, just as it is the nature of the sun to shine. And that love is the mark of a faith that is real. It touches our bank accounts and our diaries. It governs the stewardship of our time and talents, our energy and our possessions. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. So how are we loving? 
10 out of 10, 10 out of 100, 1,000? Do you feel up for it or completely inadequate or somewhere in between? Last week we were looking at the first half of chapter 3 and the first verse states, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's fundamental. That's a fact. And each of us has a choice. We either accept that as a fact, we believe that to be true, or we don't. Now, towards the end of today's passage, John writes, this is God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, believing in the name of Jesus is much more than saying, I believe in God. It's much more than the guy who said, religion is okay as long as it doesn't interfere with your life. What a clown. One of the issues that John was seeking to address in the church churches that he was writing to was the problem of false teaching relating to Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, whether he is who he claims to be. In the first century and obviously long before social media and and 24-hour news, etc., there were nevertheless many weird and wonderful competing ideas and philosophies being preached, in inverted commas, to attract followers. There were many forces ranged against the early believers. Their beliefs and lives were tested and there were no doubt times when folks were minded to throw in the towel and wonder whether in following Jesus they'd backed the wrong horse. There is a great deal we don't know about the various first century groups, religious or otherwise, but one group religion we do know about is Gnosticism. Gnosis means knowledge, special knowledge, secret knowledge, given only to a few folk. If you had this knowledge, it was believed by folks that you could ultimately escape from the flesh and blood nitty-gritty reality of everyday life into a purely spiritual realm. Now these folks don't believe that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh. Tom Wright comments, for people who embrace this teaching, and it can be made to sound for a while at least quite like some bits of the genuine Christian message. It was really out of the question that Jesus the Messiah should really have come in the flesh. He was surely, they thought, a spiritual being. He couldn't have compromised that spiritual identity by having anything to do with flesh the sordid, dirty, physical stuff that needed to eat and drink, to urinate and defecate, to sleep, and even horror of all horrors, to die. And so when they talked about Jesus, it wasn't the real Jesus they were referring to. It was someone who only seemed to be a human like the rest of us. 
They made up stories about how he hadn't really died because he hadn't really been a genuine fleshly human all along. He was a spiritual being who came to reveal to others, to people who had a spark of that same spirit already in them, that they were spiritual too and that by following his way they could escape the world altogether. There are many religious movements today, including some major ones that similarly deny that Jesus could actually have been an ordinary fleshly human being and died a cruel death. If you believe in that disembodied Jesus, then you reject the real Jesus. You reject the truth stated in John's Gospel 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Note that, full of grace and truth. It's when we follow, when we believe in the real Jesus that we can confidently reach out to others in Jesus' name knowing that he has life experience in spades, life experience similar to us, what we go through. Sometimes when you quote Jesus saying, love your neighbor, people come back and say, ah, but Jesus didn't have neighbors like mine. Well, if Jesus' neighbours had regarded him purely as an inoffensive community champion, parroting platitudes and dancing to their tune and their various agendas, it is highly unlikely they would have called for his execution as a reward for his community work. John writes in verse 13 to 14, Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. What John is saying is that when the real Jesus is at work in our lives, other folk can see the difference that Jesus makes. And while some will respond positively to Jesus, others see him as a threat as a challenge to their lives, and so they react negatively, and in turn, they are hostile towards Jesus and his church. That's why John includes the mention of Cain and Abel in verse 12, who had different responses to God. Over the past couple of years, people's lives the world over have been disrupted, changed, altered, and sadly for some have ended during the pandemic. Like many people, I became a Zoomer for the first time in the early days of the first lockdown. Although some misguided people would say I was a Zoomer long before that. But why did I suddenly turn to, towards the praise group and Ian and you're the kind of what I'm talking about. We couldn't meet in person. Those of us who could work from home became used to endless teams meetings. 
The most common phrase of lockdown must surely be, you're on mute. <laughs> there are those who would say to the church, your God is on mute. And let's be honest, sometimes particularly when we haven't been able to gather together in person, we've had our moments of doubt and think maybe our detractors have a point. Now, if Gordon can quote a carol on the 1st of May, I can quote one on the 15th of May, after all the nights. Anyway, I can quote one on the 15th of May in reference to the birth of the real flesh and blood God with us, Jesus. The everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. Jesus' birth came arguably after many years when again some may have wondered whether God was in mute, not interested, had given up on his creation, had decided we weren't worth it, we were beyond redemption. Maybe he didn't love us enough to reach out to us and bring us back to him. When I was 18, so it's a wee bit over 10 years ago, <laughs> I worked on a community programme at a day centre and night shelter in Glasgow run by the Church of Scotland. And I always remember a 21-year-old guy saying, my life is over. Similarly, a few years ago, there was a documentary in telly looking at the problem of child drug addicts. Now, I'm not great with statistics and data, etc., but the one thing that shocked me to the core that I'll, I'll never forget was near the end of the program, the reporter said to a 10-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, do you realize drugs are killing you? The hopeless reply came back, well, you've got to die sometime. A ten-year-old, well, you've got to die sometime. Last Sunday, John highlighted during the notices that David McAdam from the Bethany Trust would be speaking at our evening service. I have a small standing order with Bethany, but I had limited awareness of the full range of work that Bethany do. So I decided to go along last Sunday night to hear more. David had brought along a few folks um, who Bethany has been journeying with and supporting in life's often difficult circumstances. Bethany reaches out to folks in Jesus' name and often works in partnership with local churches. One of the guys in particular, uh, pre-pandemic, had attended Cathy Clare on a Tuesday morning and indeed had become a regular volunteer. He described the acceptance he'd found, the support he'd experienced, something which frankly hadn't been his experience for much of his life. He discovered that he mattered. He was a worthwhile, loved human being. Now all your problems don't suddenly disappear with that realization. 
but to realize you matter and are loved is life-changing. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The former minister of the Tron Church in Glasgow, Eric Alexander, once said, you don't become a missionary by getting on a plane and flying to the other side of the world. Now, he wasn't denying that some Christians are called by God to serve abroad. The point he was making was that only a relatively small number of Christians will be called to serve in that way. But for many others, God calls us to serve where we are in a particular fellowship, line of work, etc. While I was lifting my box of commentaries out of the cupboard to get the relevance, the relevant ones to prepare for this sermon, the wee book, Will You Be My Facebook Friend, Social Media and the Gospel, by Tim Chester, fell out on the floor. Now, Tim Chester's written um, many books, including the Lent study based on Hebrews, um, entitled Forgiven, which we were following during Lent this year. Now, the book was written 10 years ago, um, but nevertheless, there's a lot of relevant points in it. Chester doesn't deny that Facebook and social media can be used widely and usefully, but he recognises dangers which Christians can all too easily fall into, in terms not least of seeking approval and acceptance from their Facebook friends and seeking to create an online identity which is very far from the reality of their lives. Chester writes, Paul says to the Christian community in Thessalonica, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Not just words, but a shared life. Not just words, but face to face. Not just an online presence, but an embodied presence. Professor Barry Wellman of Toronto University talks of networked individualism. We can move from one online community to another. We can drop, forget, invite and ignore Facebook friends at will without any consequences. We build our own worlds. God has placed you together with the people in your congregation. You didn't choose them. God chose them. And that diversity of personalities, 
backgrounds, social class, and ethnicities is used by God to make you grow in Christ and to display the unifying power of the cross. But in cyberspace, you are God. You choose who you will be in community with. You create your own communities of convenience that mean you're never challenged. Or if you are challenged, or relationships become costly, you can just scuttle off to new relationships. As a result, we never grow. We are permanently immature. Some of us have little time for community life and missional endeavour because we're spending too much time on Facebook or watching telly or surfing blogs. We are opting for disembodied life over embodied life. In many ways, disembodied life is easier, but it's less fulfilling, less real, less satisfying. Embodied life is harder, but it's more fulfilling, more real, more satisfying. It is more substantial. You can touch it, feel it, embrace it. Remember Jesus' promise. I came so you can have real and eternal life more and better life than you ever dreamed of. Remember too, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Amen.